just as we have really gotten going on the journey of Advent, just when we've settled into the familiar patterns of Christmas and gotten used to lighting the Advent wreath and all that good stuff, John the Baptist stalks down our aisle shouting, Repent! The kingdom of God has come near! Who is this weird guy? And what does he have to do with Christmas anyway? The Gospel of Matthew doesn't help us much. We're told that John wore rough garments, that he ate honey and locusts, the food of the poor, that he chose to preach not in the city of Jerusalem, but out in the wilderness, and that he baptized those who came to him. Other than that, we know nothing of John's origins, nor do we have any indication of why he came to preach. Bear in mind, this is Matthew, not Luke, okay? <laughs> What Matthew does make clear is that John saw himself as the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah, and that his purpose was, in the words of Isaiah, to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Everything that John said and did was for that purpose. The clothing that he wore was meant to evoke the memory of the ancient prophet Elijah, whose return, it was said, would herald the Messiah's imminent arrival. Likewise, his choice to preach in the wilderness was designed both to bring Isaiah's prophecy to mind and to stir up memories of Israel's history, in which the wilderness was a place of both judgment and renewal. John preaches with urgency and passion, and he doesn't mince words, especially when the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, show up. You brood of vipers, he shouts at them, who warned you to free from the wrath to come. His sermons are full of dire warnings like that. The axe is poised at the root of trees, and trees that do not produce good fruit will be thrown in the fire. The one who comes carries a winnowing fork, and the shaft left after his threshing will be burned with unquenchable fire. It's pretty scary stuff, totally void of even the smallest hint of grace. In the words of David Lowe's, don't look to John for forgiveness because you won't find it. What we do find is a fervent call to repentance in the face of coming judgment. And again, we ask, what does this have to do with Christmas? Maybe the words from Isaiah that we read earlier in the service can help us. In this passage, written during a difficult period in Israel's history, Isaiah likens the monarchy established by David, the son of Jesse, to a root or a stump. Out of this seemingly dead end in the family tree, however, a new ruler will arise, a ruler whose wisdom and power and knowledge will be given to him by the Spirit of God. This new ruler will not make decisions based on hearsay or first impressions, but will govern with righteousness, exacting justice for the poor and vulnerable and bringing the way of the wicked to an end. Isaiah's vision then expands to encompass the whole of creation. He foresees a return to Eden, a time in the far future when which prey and predator will live in harmony together and even children will play safely around animals that would once have caused them harm. All nations will live together in peace and in the words of Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. 
It's a beautiful vision, this dream of a long dead prophet, a vision that expresses our longing for peace and justice. But Isaiah's words are more than just a dream, for they express the desire and the attention of God, and by extension, the shape of God's judgment, a judgment whose purpose is not condemnation, but salvation. John preaches that judgment because he knows that if God's desire for our world is to become reality, then some paths need to be straightened out. Some trees need to be cut down and a fire needs to be set. But fire is meant not to punish, but to purify, to clear space for a new beginning, to get rid of all that keeps us from living as God would have us live. Divine judgment arises from God's desire to bring things in line with God's intention for the world and for us, rather than a desire for retribution. Theologian Wesley Allen puts it this way, for Matthew, and I would add for John, salvation and judgment are two poles of the same magnet. If God decides between what is just and unjust, then God is judge. If God decides that we need to be saved from our sin and liberated from oppression, then God has judged our sinfulness and our situation as not according to God's will. God's mercy and love are meaningless if God cannot choose to see us and our situations in different ways. For Matthew, to meet and to know Christ is to be judged and saved at the same time. The proper response is repentance. Might it be then that we should pray for judgment? Perhaps. But as much as John proclaims judgment, the purpose of his ministry is not to bring it about, but rather to call people to repentance so that they will be prepared to meet the one who is coming, the one who will embody the spirit, the will, the way of God's kingdom. The root meaning of the word repent is to turn to change one's mind and direction. It's not so much about feeling sorry for our sins as it is about turning away from the toxic values and practices that damage our relationships and scar our world and turning to the values and practices of the kingdom of God. David Losigan points out that the emphasis of repentance is not so much on what we have done wrong but on what is right and good and what we will do differently. He goes on, repentance also underscores that change isn't necessary for change's sake, but rather that change is necessary because we become aware that our actions are out of step with God's deep desire for peace and equity for all of God's people. And taking Isaiah's vivid imagery in the second reading seriously, for the whole of creation. Repentance, in short, is realizing that God is pointing you one way, that you've been traveling another way and changing course. As we look at how much is wrong with our world and yes, with our own lives, repentance can seem pretty daunting, leading us to feel overwhelmed by guilt and a sense of unworthiness. 
But that is neither John's purpose nor mine. For I believe that God judges us because God desires to redeem and to transform us. And here's the thing. We can't find the strength, the will, the courage, the hope to repent in and of ourselves. It is the gift of Jesus Christ, the one on whom the Spirit of God rests, the one who rules in righteousness. In the words of David Lose, it is Jesus, always and only Jesus, the one who judges in order to forgive, accuses in order to justify, gives law in order to show grace, and dies that we might have life. Thanks be to God. For repentance is not just a change of mind. It is a change of heart that leads to action. Bear the fruits of repentance, John cries. Lift out your repentance and deeds that promote peace and justice and in acts of compassion and kindness and mercy. So how do we do that? I think we best begin by acknowledging our deepest longings for our lives and for the world. What? Isaiah expressed his longing in a vision of a peaceable kingdom. What is your longing for your life, for your community, for the world? I'm going to invite you to do something a little different. I'm going to invite you to find a prayer card in the pew somewhere near you. And if you don't have one, wave your hand and maybe someone can hand you one. And a pencil or a pen. See if you can find one. If you don't have a pencil or a pen, I have a pen here if somebody in the choir needs one. Of course, you've got them in your folders, so, okay. Okay, so I want you to take a few minutes right now and write down those longings on that card. Leave space because there's going to be some more writing happening. Write down your longings for yourself, for your community, for your world. Go. When you're done with that, I invite you to think, to daydream, if you will, about what God longs for. What is God's desire for your life? What does God want you to be and do? Take a few minutes to reflect and write your answers in a few words on that same card.
I know you can think about this for a long time. That's all right. To start. Two more things. I invite you to choose one, just one element of your life of which you would like to repent, on which you change direct, want to change direction and write that down. Is there an unhealthy relationship that you want to repair? Can you imagine using your time in a different way, maybe toward a better end? Is there a practice or habit you would like to take up that would produce a more abundant life for you or for people around you? What is one thing, just one, of which you wish to repent? That was easier. <laughs> and finally, I invite you to think about one element of our communal life within the church, outside of the church, in our world that needs repentance. You can think big or small. When I think big, I think of poverty and racism and homelessness and conflict. And I might small, I might think about something that's happening in the city or in the church that needs someone to volunteer. Think about how you might contribute to that sort of repentance. Can you spend time volunteering at a local charity or make an additional donation? Can you get to know someone who is ethically, ethnically, politically, or socioeconomically different from you? Can you begin praying about one issue in our church or in the community each day, asking for God's direction and making a change? What is one thing, one element of repentance to which you can contribute in our communal life? Now, if you haven't written a lot down or you're thinking, wow, that's a lot to think about, I understand. <laughs> Maybe it's something that you just hold on to for a bit. Because, you know, and ultimately, it is the work of God that will bring about repentance in us, just as it is the will of God that will fulfill Isaiah's vision and bring it into reality. But if we can express our longing and then imagine that it doesn't have to be this way or it can be this way, Perhaps our longing will become hope, and hope will translate into the fruits of repentance, into acts that will align us more with God's intention and God's dream, the dream that Christ embodied, a dream by which we can set our course. I invite you to take home this card, to put it in a place where you can see it, and to pray with it during this season of Advent. Now, please know I'm not asking you to make some early New Year's resolutions here. <laughs> Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing practice. Every day of the journey of Advent, every day of our lives is an opportunity to take part in the fulfillment of God's intention for our world by living into the fruitful life that Jesus came to show us. My hope is that seeing this card, and yes, I will have one for myself as well. My hope is that seeing this card will remind us of the promise of Isaiah and the call of John and encourage us to put our trust in the one who comes to judge and save us all, 
the one who comes in love and grace. May our journey in this Advent season indeed take us from longing to hope, a hope that bears the fruit of repentance and leads us to Christmas joy. Will you pray with me? Holy God, it is so easy to get caught up in the busyness of this season. We move quickly from one moment to the next, rushing past our feelings, looking through people obsessed with getting to the next event, consumed with a shallow triumph of accomplishing just one more task. Oh God, take us into the wilderness of your love and help us to repent of all that separates us from you and from each other. May our longings translate into hope and our hope into acts of compassion and mercy as we seek to live into your vision and to ready our hearts to receive the one whose advent makes all creation whole. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.